Now we're talking about the second set of festivals, which are the last three festivals. And this begins in chapter 23, verse 23. These, I can tell you how they were supposed to do it, and I can take a really good, what I believe, um, scholarly guess of how they're going to be fulfilled based on what we've seen in the Second Testament, but I can't tell you exactly how they're going to be fulfilled because they haven't been fulfilled yet. So I'll do my best um, based on what scholars and other people have kind of seen here and there that are displayed in Revelation, but... Don't take my word for it. We'll just have to wait and see what happens. But I do believe that there's enough evidence that we can see this because that was the point, the foreshadow, to to let him who has eyes and let him who has ears figure out the point that God is making. Um, and the question is, is that being revealed to us now or do we have to wait? Some things God has literally said, seal up until the time is appropriate. And no one's allowed to understand it until that appropriate time. Other things he's put in the scripture for us to figure out through um, the, the intellect and the study that we as a body of Christ as a whole together have and the guidance of the Holy Spirit and prayer that we have is together. So, so maybe right, maybe wrong, but I do think it fits. So the other thing I would like to say is I think if Christ fulfilled the first four so literally in a lot of ways, and so specifically, I think we can kind of expect that of the second three as well. So the, the fifth festival, which begins in the fall, is the Festival of Trumpets. And this begins in the first of Tishri. The first of Tishri is the first month in the Jewish calendar. So all the other festivals um, were taking place in Nisan in the following month, which is the seventh and eighth month of the calendar. This takes place in the first month of the calendar, Tishri. On the first of Tishri, they would gather together as a nation on New Year's Day, and they would all gather together corporately as a nation, and they would present themselves before the tabernacle. And they would all come to the tabernacle, surround the tabernacle, and it would become their national day of repentance. And so it would be kind of like unleavened bread. But however, where unleavened bread was a seven-day festival where the individuals in their homes would do repentance that helped them process what they had just done as a family through Passover. This trumpets is a national corporate repentance day. So this would be kind of like the entire nation gathering together for the inauguration of the president, except rather than in putting a new president in place, we would be repenting of our national sins. And we would be very conscious that we as an entire nation are coming together. And so they would go to the tabernacle and they would recognize the fact that they are about ready to lose the presence of God. So they would walk before the tabernacle and they would acknowledge that the king of the entire universe has chosen to come down and enthrone himself on the Ark of the Covenant before their presence. And that they have experienced him for an entire year. And in this entire year, the sins of ignorance have been building up and defiling the nation. Now in chapter 16, we talked about that the climax of the whole book of Leviticus was the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was taking care of the sins that have built up for an entire year. 
And because the sins have been built up for an entire year and defiled that place and that nation, God can no longer dwell with them. And so the Day of Atonement, they had to cleanse the sins that had been built up over the year in order for God to dwell with them another year. So the first that happens on the 10th of Tishri. So that means 10 days before that is the Feast of Trumpets. So the Feast of Trumpets is the beginning of their repentance, and they're realizing that God could possibly be leaving us in the next 10 days if we don't deal with this sin. So it starts preparing the entire nation for the Day of Atonement. That's the point of Feast of Trumpets, is to prepare the entire nation for the Day of Atonement. So they would stand up before the tabernacle on the first of Tishri, and then for the next 10 days, they would be getting ready like ready for a wedding, like spending every moment, for, like the, the days are counting down, we're only 10 days away, we're only nine days away. This is the biggest event of our entire life that we've part, kind of prepared for. There's so many things to do, and they would be doing that. They're getting all the animals in place, they'd be trying to get their heart in place. And the Feast of Trumpets was basically blowing the trumpet to announce the presence of God, and that they're trying to do everything in their power to get ready to keep the presence of God, which is going to happen the Day of Atonement. Does that make sense? And so this was them acknowledging that God is with them and that they need to do any, everything possibly as they could as a corporate people to make sure that God stays with them. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not like they're like trying to bend his arm and hold him down, but that you're going to live as righteously as you possibly can to get God to start. So that's the first satishery. So where most Americans are recovering from a hangover on New Year's Day, they're actually repenting of their sins and presenting themselves before God and, and dealing with their sins or repenting of their sins. This is kind of like a New Year's resolution, except the New Year's resolution is we're going to get rid of our sin so God can stay with us. So that's the first satishri. They blow the trumpets. This is the shofar that they would blow as the horn. Now, anybody know what a shofar is? Yeah, it's a huge ram's horn, giant ram's horn. And if you ever watch Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia, they blow the ram's horn. It's that deep, like lulling blast of a noise that kind of echoes throughout the nation. And so they would blow that, and that would signal the coming of God, the coming of Yahweh. They're presenting themselves before him. So that's the first satishri. So that's how they begin the new year. Ten days later would be the Day of Atonement. Now, we already talked about this in depth in chapter 16, so mostly what I'm interested in is how does it fit in with everything else. So after the last 10 days of getting ready for the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement would be on the 10th of Tishri, and this is where they would all stand there together as an entire nation, and they would watch the high priest take the goat into the tabernacle area, sacrifice it, pour out the blood, and then he would go into the tabernacle. It would be like this moment of suspense because he would go into the tent that nobody else is allowed to go in and he would go in. And you're almost like holding your, his, your breath. Is he going to die? I mean, we know Nadab and Abihu died when they did it wrong with the, the, just the incense, let alone going to the Holy of Holies. And so they would go in there and there would be this sense of holding your breath until he came out. And when he came out, there would be a big celebration. At the same time, they're supposed to be fasting and rendering their clothes because they acknowledging that they're coming into the presence of God and they need to do that with a, a, a repentant heart. 
Then he would come out and he would take the second goat, lay his hands on it or lean into it, and they would lead it out into the wilderness as far as they could take it so they could never find its way back. So in this day, the sins of ignorance that have built up for the entire nation have completely been taken care of. And this is where they're finally atoned for. So yes, in some ways, in their daily individual sacrifices, they're, they're finding atonement. But they're not finding complete atonement because there's all these sins that they don't know about that are building up. And the fact that they still have to offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, which means the sacrificial system is really not cutting it. And so the Day of Atonement is supposed to take care of all those sins that they didn't know about and kind of bring a completion to the atonement. However, there's still a sense of incompletion because they have to begin it all over again in the next year. All over again in the next year. So that's the Day of Atonement. That was celebrating the 10th of Tishri. Then on the 15th of Tishri would be the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, Tents. All different words that you've probably heard to describe the same event, booth, tent, tabernacle. This was an eight-day-long festival, and it began on the 15th of Tishri. And so what they would do is they would go like, so let's talk about mostly as the nation. They're in the promised land because that's what they're going to be mostly be doing throughout their life. They're in the promised land. They're living in their homes that God has given them. So in the Feast of Tabernacles, they would leave their homes and go live in tents for a week. And somewhere out there, they, the entire family would go out and live in a tent, and it was to remind them of their days in the wilderness and remind them of the days that they didn't have a land and that they were wandering and the promises of God hadn't been fulfilled. And so, and it would remind them of the fact that they were given the law and given the tabernacle. On the eighth day, they would come back to their homes and they would live in their homes and they have a huge celebration celebrating the fact that God gave them the land. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was mostly about the fact that God was dwelling with them. They were celebrating the fact that God actually gave them a tabernacle, which would eventually become the temple, and that God actually dwelt with them, and that God actually gave them a land. Because the tabernacle and the land are um, intricately linked. Because without the land, the tabernacle doesn't really have a true deep fulfillment promise to it, meaning to it. And so this would be a celebration of the actual presence of God dwelling with them. So the first petitionary is acknowledging that God is coming and that they want him to come. And the, 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 on the 10th of Tishri is the Day of Atonement where they actually atone for the sins so that God can stay with them. And then the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles is celebrating the fact that God actually does dwell with them. And he's given them both the tabernacle and the land where he's literally said, I've put my name on this land. And remember, name is character. So I've put my character, my presence in this land to dwell with you. And that's what these three things would focus on in these festivals. And it's significant that it's on the eighth day that they go back in their homes because the eighth day is the number of new beginnings, completion and new beginnings. And so like seven represents completion, eight represents completion and new beginnings, like completion in the sense that it's been complete, and now we're starting into something new that is complete, something that is operating the way it's supposed to. And that's why Sunday is not only the first day of the week, but it's also the eighth day of the week. And it's kind of like the ace in the deck of cards. It can be the, last, the highest number or the lowest number, depending on how you want to use it. 
And that's how Sunday operates in a theological, metaphorical kind of way. It's the first day of the week, but it's also the eighth day in a festival because it's the, the continuation, the completion. So how will these be fulfilled? I think that the first satishery, the only other thing that we see that really matches up with that is in Revelation we're told that the trumpets are going to be blown and it will be the resurrection of all people. The first satishery might be our resurrection. And we know that on that day, silver trumpets are going to be blown and we're all going to be raised from the dead and we're going to get our bodies back. Because remember, your salvation is not complete until you get your body back because God created us to be physical and spiritual in the garden. To not be in the garden and to not have spiritual life and to not have physical life is all an absence of salvation. I don't know if I've talked about this, but remember... Paul does not look forward to the day that he goes to heaven as the ultimate completion. He does. He does say to be absent from the body is present with the Lord, but he doesn't say that in the sense of, and it's all done, and I finally arrived, and everything's great now. He talks about that as being better, because if he's present with the Lord, that's pretty awesome. And if he's absent from the body, then he's absent from his sinful nature. But Paul goes on in other writings and many in other places and says, it's not until our resurrection that our salvation is finally complete. And if you want to use the big fancy theological terms, the day that you accepted Christ was your justification. That was the day that you were made right before God, that you were no longer guilty of your sin. You would no longer be condemned and sent to hell, and you would never, no longer be under the judgment of the law anymore. Because now you're right before God because Christ's blood has taken care of that. But we all know that we still have sin. Even though our sin has been paid for, we're still sinning. Even today, now. We, we were all saved, and this is that already not yet. I am saved, but I'm not yet saved. But, Paul goes on and says that he is faithful to finish the work that he began in you. That brings us to sanctification. Sanctifications where on a daily basis now we are spending time in prayer, reading our Bible, gathering together as believers, and, and allowing the Holy Spirit to cleanse us on a daily basis and transform us through renewing of our mind so that we become more and more like Christ that so there's less and less sin. But in, then, even then we're not completely saved. All right and not yet. And so that then leads us to our death, where the sin in us finally is able to die because our sin is in our body and it dies with our body. And don't ask me how that one works. I have no idea. And so, and we're now present with the Lord, but we're still completely absent from our body. So we're experiencing a different kind of death. And we know it's death because we call it death. I think it's so interesting that we talk about heaven as the final destination and everything will be great in heaven, but we still call it death. Well, death is the curse. If, if heaven is really it, then why do we call heaven death? The only way you can get there is through death. So we're not really... Now, will it be way better than it is now? Yes, because you're with God and there's no more sin in your life and there's nothing between you and Him. But you're going to still be experiencing a death or a separation because you're not going to be complete in a different kind of way. And I have no idea what that's going to be like because I haven't experienced it yet. But you'll still be with God. So I don't have no idea how that works. So then that leads us to our glorification. And the glorification is the day that we get our bodies back 
and then we're placed back in the garden on earth. And so not only do our spiritual bodies and our physical bodies come back together, but heaven and earth come back together. And everything is rejoined and everything is made right again completely. And that's when our salvation is finally complete. And so I talk about all that because that's, I think that's what these three festivals are talking about. The first festival is our resurrection. And we're finally put back with our bodies. And we're being made complete. And we're all presented before the throne of God. Now, how literally we take that? Are we all like all gathering around? Are we in a big giant line? I don't know. But I do think there's going to be something physical, something literal going on there as we're present before the throne of God. And we're presenting ourselves and announcing that God has come because something significant is happening. The resurrection of everybody who's ever lived is a huge event in world history. And we are going to make ourselves right before God because I think then that the feast of the Day of Atonement is the day that we stand before God, and that's Judgment Day. And we're told in the book of Revelation that two books are opened up, the book of the Lamb and the book of the Law. And you will stand before God on that day, and He will you'll come before Him. Now, will there be this long line? You'll go through every single person that's ever happened one by one by one. I don't know. Or is it just a metaphor that we're all standing one by one, one by one, to give us an idea what's going to happen, but because he's God, it just all happens like that? I don't know. But I do know that there's going to be some kind of presenting ourselves before Yahweh, and the books are open up. If you're found in the book of the Lamb, that means it's because you have been covered in the blood of the Lamb, and he has atoned for your sins, And now that your sin is dead in your body and your body has been resurrected and you now have a new body, you no longer have sin and you don't have to pay for your sin because you're in the book of the Lamb. And the book of the Lamb has said that you've accepted Christ and Christ has paid for your sin and now you have life. And that's our judgment. And we, everybody goes through the fire. Everybody goes through the fire and the judgment. How you come out the other side depends on whether you have Christ or not. And so the fire will either refine you or it will destroy you. And so if you are not found in the book of the Lamb, that means it's because you have not accepted Christ. And therefore, he has not paid for your sins because you rejected that gift. Then you are going to the book of the law. And if you basically have said, I don't want Christ to meet all the requirements of the law for me, then who now has to meet the requirements of the law for you? You do. If you refuse Christ meeting all the requirements of the law, then you're all on your own. It's kind of like the person in school who's like, I don't need your help. I don't need your help. You're it's like, okay, well, then you're on your own. Okay? I, I mean, I can't force you to take my help, but I'll constantly be there. But if you keep rejecting me, then you're completely on your own for this test or this homework assignment. And so they keep rejecting it, and they say, I'll do it on myself. And the, the, the words of Elvis and, um, what's the other guy? I just went blank. Yeah, Frank Sinatra, I'll do, I did it my way. Okay, now you do it your way, now you face the book of law. And now the question is, did you meet the requirements of the law? And the answer is, no. And the law always condemns. And you're judged, and you're condemned. And that's basically what's going on there. There's not like God, this, this is my biggest pet peeve. I heard this so many times growing up, and kids still come into my school telling me that they're being told this. One day when you die, 
God's going to bring you up in heaven before the judgment scene. He's on a big, giant jumbo screen. He's going to put all the sins that you've ever committed your entire life. And everybody's going to watch it. So be careful. Seriously. If that's your view of God, that's kind of messed up. That's not, there's only one sin that sends you to hell. The rejection of the Holy Spirit. Period. Christ's death paid for all sins. Even the sins of the people who rejected him. They're all paid for. And the only sin that God puts up there is, are you in the book of the Lamb or not? That's the only sin that anybody's ever going to see. And I don't even know how many people are even going to see that. That's the only question that God has. And then he's going to say, do you meet the requirements of law? And I don't think he's going to put every sin up there because I think all he does do is get to the first commandment and you're done. And so the reality is, if you sin against one part of the law, you sin against part, all of the law. And so I think that's the Day of Atonement. Because even though in some way Christ's death on the cross kind of fulfilled the Day of Atonement, it didn't completely fulfill the Day of Atonement because we haven't been completely cleansed. Remember, the Day of Atonement was not about taking away our judgment for sin. The Day of Atonement was about cleansing us of our sin. That's what it was doing. The, 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 the Passover meal took care of your debt of sin. The burnt offering took care of your debt of sin. Christ is fulfilling the Passover by taking care of your debt of sin, but he has not fulfilled the Day of Atonement because even though we Paul uses language that we are atoned, Paul's also using in the context of knowing that we haven't been completely atoned for because we haven't been completely cleansed. And so the Day of Atonement is that day that we stand before the Lamb and our new resurrected body, and he can truly say, you're cleansed. Because your body has died with your sin, and Christ has paid for your sin, and you're no longer sinning anymore because now you have a new body that's not filled with sin, and you're now completely atoned for. And that is your final salvation, which then leads you to the day of tabernacles. And we are immediately told in the book of Revelation what's the last thing that happens. We're told that the city of Jerusalem, the temple... God and the Lamb all come down and it rests in earth. And we're told that the kingdom of God comes down. And remember that John began with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and the Word, in chapter, in verse 14, the Word became flesh, and the Word tabernacled among us. And so in that sense, when the literal heavenly tabernacle... (laughs) and Jesus and God all come down to earth, then the kingdom of God is literally on earth now. And that's the day of tabernacles, because it's kind of like the seven days of not having it, and on the eighth day, God comes down. And he actually dwells with us for all eternity. And this is why we're told to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, praise it or hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come on thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The first thing that you're told to pray is praising God for who he is and to ask and do everything in your power to make sure that his kingdom comes down to earth. Nowhere does God ever pray and pray that we get taken up or that we go up there and everything's great. He tells you to pray that it would all come down here. That's what you're told to pray. And remember all throughout the Bible, the theme is God coming down to us. The Tower of Babel, man was trying to go up. 
But through Jacob's vision, God came down. God came down in the garden. God came down and pursued Cain. God came down and judged him at Tower of Babel. God came down in the tabernacle. He came down in the temple. He came down in the body of Jesus Christ. He came down in the Holy Spirit. You should be anticipating now coming down, coming down, coming down. When you get to Revelation, you should expect a coming down. And so I think what's happening here with these feasts is these feasts are looking forward to the day that we're going to be resurrected, stood before God. The day of atonement is we're going to finally be completely atoned for and all sins are going to be eliminated in our life in a cleansing sense, not in a debt sense. And then, because you're already in the book of Lamb because of Passover, now you can finally be cleansed. And then the literal kingdom of God is going to come down. And when you understand what's going on in Revelation, it gets really cool. I think that is one of the coolest things in the entire Bible is for me, like, I think it's way more exciting not to go up to heaven, but to actually know that heaven is going to come back to this planet. And that we're not going to be sitting on some cloud with a harp for all eternity. <laughs> that God actually designed us to be more than that. And, and, and I'm not saying that it wouldn't be awesome. God would find a way to make it awesome because he's God. But at the same time, he designed us to be way more than just that. And then why would he create the garden where he puts a physical Adam and Eve to live in a physical world, to have a physical relationship with God, to physically rule and subdue, and to physically transform the universe. And then he dies on the cross and does all this stuff and sends you the Holy Spirit and sanctify you just so you can sit in some disembodied spirit on a cloud for all eternity. That doesn't make sense to me. And so I think the ultimate goal is to bring him back down to rejoin heaven and earth. C.S. Lewis called this the great divorce. And now it's all coming back together, where he comes back. And even in the prophets, you see this idea of the, the groom. I mean, that's even the parables of Jesus. The groom is coming back for the bride. He's not taking the bride to him. He's coming back to the bride, and he's cleansing her. He's making her right, and he's got a place for her on this planet. And I think what we're going to do is we're going to spend the rest of eternity continuing to expand the garden that we were meant to do a long time ago. And so I think that these three festivals are pointing to that. And just as these three festivals were pointing to the fact of Israel making sure that God could be with them for another year, they're looking forward to the fact that God will ultimately stay with us for all eternity because Christ is our ultimate cleansing. And we'll need no longer any other Day of Atonement. Because just like Christ brought an end to all Passovers, he's going to bring an end to all Day of Atonements and the second coming. And I think what you have is this beautiful picture of those things. Does that make sense? And I, I really think that what God is doing is painting a beautiful picture here that in the spring, he's bringing you a new life. All these festivals are foreshadowing a new life, a new life with the Son, a new life with the Holy Spirit, a new life with a new law. And the fall festival is painting the fact that God is going to do away with that old era. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that he's going to nuke the planet and blow it all up and build a new planet. It says he's going to renew it, redeem it, restore it. And so I think the spring is pointing to the new life that we can have in God, and the fall is pointing to the fact that he's going to do away with that old world, that old system of thinking, and bringing the new beginnings of other things. And so these are the festivals. Do the Jewish uh, people celebrate these still today? They do celebrate these. Oh. 
They do celebrate these. Now, depending on whether you're a, a Reformed Jew or an Orthodox Jew or whatever that kind of stuff depends on probably how seriously you take it. I mean, that's the same thing with Christians. Like, how Christian are you depends on how seriously you take a lot of things that we do in church. I don't know exactly how they do the Day of Atonement because they have no temple anymore. And they're not allowed to do sacrifices anymore because God made it very clear that sacrifices can only happen in the temple. And therefore, without the temple, there isn't a sacrifice. So I know that a lot of Jews have gone more towards a works-oriented salvation where they just kind of hope that if they do these festivals that, and they do other things, that that becomes their kind of a metaphorical sacrifice and that hopefully that will take care of them when the temple is rebuilt. And when they do that first sacrifice, then it'll kind of all build up. At least that's how the Orthodox Jews think, and they're like the, the, the ones... And look, everything they're doing is commanded by God. I mean, God has commanded you. To, so they're fasting like God has commanded. They're praying like God has commanded. They're, um, they're, they're praying and reading the word like God has commanded. They're placing their hope like God has commanded. But notice the difference here is there is no sense of hope. I mean, they're, they're pleading with God. They're begging for God. They're doing their works. They're praying and they're hoping that they have done enough to appease the mercy of God. Where the difference is for you and I, we don't have to close the books at the end of the day and hope that what we did was enough. Because we can look back at the once and for all sacrifice. And this is where it's huge that when you get to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews says, now you can boldly and confidently Go to the throne of God, knowing that you'll receive compassion and mercy from God because of what Christ has done for you. And that's the difference. So what they're doing is no different than what we're doing. It's just they're putting their hope in that their works were enough and that God will be merciful. Where we know that our works are not enough, but Christ was enough and that God is mercy. And so that's the big difference. And even if the sacrificial system comes back, they still know that there's a, there's a still hope that it's enough because they know they got to do the sacrifice again and again. And that's the point that Hebrews is making is like, if this could really take away sins, then why did they have to continually offer sacrifices? And he even goes on to make the point that Aaron had to make sacrifices first for his own sins and then the sins of the people, where Christ did not have to make sacrifice for his own sins. He only made it for us. And so the difference is we don't close the end of the day with this I hope I've done enough. We close the end of the day with great confidence. And that's where, like, for us, every day is a Sabbath rest. Because every day we can rest in knowing that Christ has done it all. And at any second, I can just start praying. I don't have to go to synagogue or temple or tabernacle to get into connection with God and, and do these rituals. I can just start praying right now and rest in Him. And that's the big difference. And this is what God's trying to point to us. So what a lot of what they're feeling now is what the Jews were feeling all along. All along, just anticipating, waiting for the day, waiting for the day. Abraham, by faith, obeyed and followed God, knowing that this is not the land that he was going to receive, but looking forward to a greater land because he wasn't going to receive in his lifetime. How do, how we do we celebrate these? We celebrate these in knowing that we are looking forward to all those things that we talked about. This is a huge celebration for us. So now when 
October and all that kind of stuff comes around. And um, years in November is, uh, fluctuates every year because the calendars are different. We can celebrate these. And maybe as a family, like, we've kind of been talking about doing this with our girls, maybe going out in the backyard and spending the night in a tent every single night and telling different parts of the story. And then on the eighth day, we go in and anticipate the kingdom of God coming. Like, we don't have to do this in a legalistic way. As long as I don't change the meaning that God has tried to communicate, there's a certain sense that the Holy Spirit can give us creativity as a family and we can celebrate these things. And what we now do is, though, is we look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ, but with a hope. A hope of not like a wishful thinking, I really hope this happens, but in a biblical hope of I expect this and eagerly desire it to happen because God has promised it will. And I all my promises are rooted in Christ. And we can do these. And so remember, all seven of these festivals, God has commanded us to do these forever. And so what does this look like in your family? What does this look like as a church as we get together? Do we be legalistic? No. Do we have a different way of looking at it than other people do? Yes, because we have Christ. But for us, it's a celebration. And I'm hoping you're beginning to realize this, like, as we go through these Sabbaths and the weekly Sabbaths, and we haven't talked about the year of Jubilee yet and, and all that kind of stuff, and think about how much God has woven his promises into everyday normal life. And I think that's what I really want you to get from this book is like, yes, some of this seems legalistic and detail-oriented, but what God is doing is really trying to weave himself into every part of life. And this is when we get to Deuteronomy, the great Shema, which is the first word, well, it's the word here. And it's the, one of the most important passages in the entire Bible, Deuteronomy 6, 4. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall have no other gods before him. And you should love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. No, all your heart, soul, and strength. The mind was the second testament with Christ. And then he goes on and says, And you shall bind these to your doorposts and your arms and your foreheads, and you shall teach this to your children as you wake up, as you walk along, as you eat, and as you go to bed. Now, the Jews took that literally and actually put like phylactery boxes with scripture verses in on their forehead, and they, and they put this on their doorposts. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I mean, I've done this. I've put it on my doorposts. We write it on our mirrors and that kind of stuff. And if that's what you need to do to remember God, then do it. <laughs> but what God was really meaning was saying that God should be so much a part of your conversation every single day, all day long, that it's not like, oh, God is only what we do when we pray before meals. And God's only what we do when we have that Bible study or when we go to church on Sunday. <laughs> God just like is always coming out of our mouth all the time. We're praising God. We're talking about God. When I'm disciplining my kids, it becomes a God moment to teach them about God and 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 then remind them of scripture verses and remind them of who he is and and that God just so much part of my vocabulary. My kids can't help but to catch that. A lot of my kids feel like their parents are hypocrites because the only time they ever talk about God is like at prayer times before meals and church on Sunday. And they don't really see it a part of their everyday normal conversation in life. And, and that's what God is trying to do here. If, if, if Leviticus is touching your, the way that you eat, it's, it's, it's gone into your sex life, it's gone into your rituals, it's gone into the way that you make food, it's gone into the way the, the, 
your, the way that your body functions. Is, he's woven it into even when you get sick. Like is, and then there's this, the, every seventh day, and then there's the tabernacles, and then there's the festivals. And the festivals are connected to the, the most important events in their life, the, the wheat and barley harvest, like things that they're already doing. God is a part of everything they do. They cannot escape God. And I think that's what God is trying to communicate with the book of Leviticus. And that's why Deuteronomy comes along later and says, that's my heart. I was not trying to be legalistic with the book of Leviticus. I was trying to weave me into your life. Because in Numbers, they miss it. And it all just becomes legalism to them. And they keep saying, oh God, you're like narrow-minded and harsh and cruel. And God's like, no, I'm not. If I was that, I would have killed you a long time ago. And you get to Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is Moses giving three speeches, and Moses is like, look, 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 look. God is patient. God is love. God is faithful. God is just weaving himself in your life. And you saw him as an intrusion. And so here's the question that you ask yourself. When you look at Leviticus, when you look at church disciplines, when you look at spiritual disciplines, when you look at prayer, when you look at reading the Bible, when you look at family Bible studies and all that kind of stuff, do you see that as an intrusion? Or do you see this as the amazing God who is always with you because he loves you? And you can't help but want to do it. When you go out with your wife or your husband, do you see date night as an intrusion? (laughs) Or do you think, wow, I've been looking forward to this because the week's been kind of busy and crappy and I can't wait to be with you. Because it's hard to be with you when three girls are jumping on us constantly all the time. (laughs) Every time we start talking with each other, it's like the girls immediately see that and become magnets. And they start... (laughs) Or do you think, oh my gosh, i got to be with you on a Tuesday night for a date? Ah, Let's just get this done and over with. That's the question. How much more with God? Is all this an intrusion in your life? Or is all this an opportunity that you can't wait to experience God? Because when you look at every other place in your life that God's not there, you're thinking, this is dark and depressing. And it drains me. And you can't wait to begin to talk about God again. And to get Him in your life. And that's what these festivals are. And so by saying you should do these forever... I'm not saying now go feel really guilty and try to figure out how to get this in your calendar so that God doesn't like get mad at you. I'm saying like, this is exciting. Like you, God just threw seven more holidays into your lap. <laughs> like go and look forward to it, anticipate it. And it's a chance to hang out and have fun and talk about God and to anticipate. And how much more would we might anticipate the second coming if we were actually weaving it into yearly festivals? And this is all God has been saying. Don't miss the heart of God. The Jews did. And they went into exile. 